Chelsea's title defense stumbles out of the gate, and the season Arsenal is supposed to mount a challenge starts in a very Arsenal way. Manchester United's second straight summer overhaul again gets off to a sputtering start, while Liverpool can still rely on Felipe Coutinho. Welcome to the season's first edition of the World Soccer Talk podcast, the 10th season of this show. And I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. As you have already figured out, the new season of the show is starting with a new cast, though new is truly in the eye of the beholder. For those that joined the show for the first time last year, two of today's voices are going to be new, but for those that have been with us since the EPL Talk Days, you'll recognize myself, as well as today's other co-hosts, Kartik Krishnayer and Lawrence McKenna. Gentlemen, let's dispense with that nostalgia for a little while, and Kartik, let's just jump right into the weekend. What jumped out to you the first weekend of this English Premier League season? What jumped out for me was that Chelsea still has some rough edges in their team. Uh, I think that Crystal Palace is one of the deepest teams in the league. And Spurs are a second striker away from being a legitimate top four contender. But I like everything else I saw from Pochettino's side. It was a very interesting game to start the weekend. Spurs losing 1-0 at Old Trafford. But a lot of pluses and minuses for each of those teams, Tottenham and Manchester United. Lawrence... Welcome back, first of all. And secondly, how did you enjoy your, your PL weekend? Welcome back. I've missed you so much. I know. It's been like, this is great, isn't it? Um, I think what I'm, what I'm learning is uh, already that so many of the previews are already redundant for this, <laughs> for this season. Um, you know, Leicester going down. Well done on that one. Yeah. Um, oh. And the, the the final thing I learned from this weekend is that um, actually Ranieri looks like, or, or, and at least sounds like, Robin Williams doing an impression of Ranieri. It's gotten to that point with uh, Claudio Ranieri, hasn't it? I, it's nice to have him back. It's nice to have that connecting link from uh, when the Premier League was a completely different time. It, I hate to reduce it to this, Kartik, but it does seem like just as in uh, English football, there was kind of a pre-Premier League and a post-Premier League era. It does seem like there is kind of a pre- and post-Mourinho uh, thing to our Premier League fandom. And Claudio Ranieri seems like he's from so, so long ago. Yeah, it's funny. I wrote a piece about this for another publication uh, last week about the history of the Premier League and really dated kind of the break point when Mourinho came to the league. And that changed the way the media interacted with teams and with managers, the way television covered the league, and uh, the, the style of play in the league. The Premier League went from being this very open league to being a much more tactical league. That's uh, Mourinho's contributions, for better or for worse. And uh, it's nice to see Claudio Ranieri back in England. I mean, it was very nostalgic to see him on a bench at a Premier League ground. Uh, managing a Premier League team on Saturday. Is this neo Mariniism? <laughs> what do you mean by that? I, that sounds like an insult. Well, this is what I'm trying to work out. Is is this some sort of uh, like there, there was there's pre Mourinho, there's mm-hmm. post Mourinho, and then there's neo Mourinho. Hmm. There's Neorinho, if you know what I mean. I kind of feel like it's all been defined by Mourinho ever since he arrived, even that time he wasn't in the league. Uh, I think like Kartik is saying, everybody just kind of approaches the league, approaches uh, the stars of the league, the leading figures in a different way. We expect them to say stupid things, and when they do, we just take it in stride, although recently people have broken their stride a little bit about with Mourinho. But I think also it just became more of a show when Mourinho came along, instead of uh, us yeah. always looking to, to United and Arsenal, all of a sudden it became a whole new, more open world. But I, I detect you're, you have a little bit of skepticism about that theory. 
I, well, I think there's just crossover between I was I was listening to both of you talking about the you know the narrative. Oh, we're picking up where we left left off narrative, oh, um, and it, uh, what I would say with that is there's also pre and post uh, Twitter Premier League as well, and I just feel like uh, now that it's almost assumed that that you know our commentary and all those kind of things go alongside it, and for me. I, yeah, I I think pre and post Twitter uh, Premier League, Kartik, you and I straddled that with this podcast. I think Richard, maybe you and I do as well. But it's like that. It, it's so different with and without Twitter. Yeah, there's instant comments. There's there's so much analysis. You know, there's, there's it's it's almost a different. It's it is a different game experience. Um, but, and you but know, almost I, the Twitter thing. I would argue though, a lot of it is driven by kind of the Mourinho experience, the instant reaction on Twitter, the instant. Uh, gratification on Twitter, the, the conversations, they're all in the context or in the greater world that Mourinho, a greater yeah, yeah. term to describe it with. I'm not saying it's a greater world, but uh, the, 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 the entitled tone. Uh, the tone that Mourinho has created in this league. Guys, yeah. I haven't checked Twitter since Friday, I think. Um, wow. Am I okay, missing well, out on help. something? Am, am I capable of watching matches without Twitter? What, what am I missing? Uh, I, I'm actually capable of watching matches exclusively through Twitter now. <laughs> Is it, is it better? I, it's, an, it's an augmented experience, I'll give you that. But I think it really works. I, I genuinely think there's one weekend where I'm just going to try and do an entire podcast of analysis from watching zero games, but just picking up what Twitter told me. And are you going to tell wonder, us you're wonder, doing that? Uh, not this weekend, no. <laughs> but what difference would it make? I wonder if you'd be able to... I wonder how accurate you'd be if you only lived uh, kind of just through social media. So I could only use Vine and Instagram. And like I, That would basically mean that I only saw what Vardy's done this weekend, and what Coutinho's Ooh. goal was. Um, yeah, we'll talk about Vardy a little bit later in the show. It's always one of those ugly things that comes up whenever you talk about football in the world. But Which one of the, do you rest on, eh? Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I wanted to talk about before we started getting into specific games is, uh, Kartik, it really did seem like we started off where we left off in the Premier League. Lots of goals. We had four matches this weekend that had at least four goals. No nil-nil draws. Uh, lots of skeptical d- defending, lots of frenetic play, and a lot of talented players being thrown into this huge chaos that has become the Premier League. Just all action, and um, I think the league is better for it, but with each passing round, with each passing season, it dawns on me that this league really is just sometimes entertaining despite itself. Yes, and this is the argument I've had about our domestic leagues. We had a record-scoring day in North American Soccer League last night, a record-scoring day in Major League Soccer the previous weekend here in North America, and uh, oftentimes it happens in spite of itself. It's because of poor defending. It's because there's so much emphasis on buying attacking players and buying more and more good attacking players. We've seen Liverpool break the bank on attacking players uh, this summer. And then one defender they added of note, Daniel Klein, is also a guy that bombs up the pitch. Uh, We've just seen that trend in English football and, and maybe globally towards buying more and more attackers, scoring more goals, more entertainment. And what do you have? You have people saying this, these are great games, but then people like Richard Lawrence and myself look at the defending and saying, my goodness, the center back was completely out of position there. That's not a great goal. Mm-hmm. Or even you take the Watford Everton game, for example, Lawrence, where um, once it gets back to 1 1, you see John Stones and Phil Jagielka sliding across a would-be shooter and eventually leaving him with an open shot to beat Tim Howard. Defenders just flopping down in front of him, not staying on their feet, not making the right decision how to address the ball. And I don't really feel like that's a standout play. 
way, I guess what really goes on in my mind is would I rather have a league like Spain where, the, um, aside from the top teams, the scores might be a little lower because you don't see those kinds of efforts despite common sense? Or would I be rather watching this weekend of uh, football where pretty much every game I watched, I was reasonably entertained? It depends on, I guess, what your end goal is, right? And also what you find entertaining. Do you find people landing on their backside entertaining or do you find people satisfyingly, uh, I want to call it defending, I'm not sure it is defending, satisfyingly defending, uh, <laughs> entertaining? Um, I, I, I know what you mean, but I also think Kartik's talking about attackers. I think, you know, even in the year that I've not, not been on the podcast, there's been a change in the trend of attacker that has been become trendy and the kind of guys and the, the kind of moves those guys are doing. I mean, look at Depay, Firmino, um, even Coutinho thriving in the league, even, you know, uh, a couple of, I mean, you know, the way that Southampton play, those kind of things have changed in even the last season. And we're seeing it almost again changing or people having to get up to speed with the movement of these attackers yet again this year. Yeah, I imagine this is going to be a common theme for us, Lawrence. It always is with us uh, trying to assess the actual quality of what we're watching without actually questioning the entertainment value because it ra- it is rather entertaining. But you did mention it's been a year since you were on the show. It's been four years since I was regularly on the show. And so let's talk about that for a minute. It's the 10th year of this show, um, no matter the name that it has been under. We're the World Soccer Talk podcast right now. going to be coming to you every weekend, mostly as a Premier League review show. We'll look a little bit to the rest of Europe also. But Lawrence, one of the things that I have been turning over in my mind ever since we all uh, decided we're going to do this again is what's going to be different this time or is anything going to be different? What what do you want to do with the show now that you're coming back to it? That's a good question. Um, I've been trying to I've been trying to work out like I, I think a lot of the time now and especially the other day I heard a pitch from someone who wasn't from London. And they were talking about the football sphere. And I said, why don't you come to London and meet some of the guys that I know? And the guy went, why would I do that? And I sort of thought, you know what, that's a really good point. Is that maybe it's sort of worth us uh, looking at the way that we podcast in general and just kind of just having some fun with it, experimenting with it. And part of me is just looking forward back to the conversations that, that we're going to have. And, you know, the very, the very general uh, tone of it. I love... Uh, you know, I've kind of missed talking with you guys and it being, you know, our different focuses. And I and, know and getting back into that, I think, is where I'm, I'm starting at least. Yeah, well, that's explicitly what I'm hoping to do. I'm hoping that we can pick, off the, pick up the show in 2015 where we left it off in 2011. But Kartik, what do you think we need to do to move the show forward? Not compared to last year or the time in between when the three of us broke up and went our separate ways. I, I think there's a realization with the three of us getting back together that we do want to try to capitalize on something we had before. But how do we move this show forward? And how do we keep up with uh, what the rest of the podcast world has been doing over the last four years? Don't try and do that. <laughs> so the answer is No. Yeah, I, don't have, keep I have a perfectly good answer for you before that. Maybe it's uh, not not specifically to that question before Lawrence interjected his opinion, which probably yeah. is the correct philosophy for us going forward. But maybe what we look at is we're going to talk about the entire Premier League. We're going to talk about the landscape around the Premier League, some of the greater issues around the league, and also look at the rest of Europe. This isn't going to be one of those uh, podcasts where, okay, we know the majority of you root for six teams. We're only going to talk about those six teams. And who cares what happens on the continent because no one cares about continental football and the Premier League is the greatest thing since sliced bread. No, we're not going to do that. So we're going to get back to basics to a certain extent. 
more and more, I think what I'm I'm seeing in in the analysis, at least that I'm uh, finding, is that there are that there, there seems to be an inside the bubble and outside the bubble, and I think that's pre and post Twitter kind of ties into that in some way. Inside the bubble is. It, it, it's not drinking the Kool-Aid, but it's certainly just, you know, uh, what they believe in a certain, a certain kind of football, the way that people play. You very often find they talk about good and bad football, those kind of things. Um, and then outside of it, there's there's a wider connection to the wider world. And I think a lot of that is looking at international relations between people. Uh, you know, the, the the fact that teams such as Kosovo are now coming through and, that you know, the implications of that sort of thing. Um, and... I mean, that, that's a, a micro within the macro. And I think that's it's the globalization of things like football now that is, is becoming really interesting. And the fact that uh, all those things are tied together, I, I wonder where that takes the podcasting experience. There are other podcasts that do that quite well, but I think that there's something to add to that, I think. And I think for better or worse, we have always been an outside-the-bubble podcast. And uh, I think some of the people that didn't like our shows before would point that out. But I think the people that liked the shows that we did before would really enjoy the fact that we weren't just buying into the same level of analysis that you would hear on other podcasts or you would hear on Match of the Day. And we wouldn't resort to or even aim for those same types of opinions. So... I think we've laid out generally what we aim to do over the next year, next season of Premier League football. But at this point, we might as well get on with the show and stop navel-gazing because there were nine matches this weekend that we intend to touch on throughout the rest of the show. The weekend started with Manchester United one nothing victory over visiting Tottenham. An own goal from Kyle Walker in the 22nd minute was the only score as the Red Devils get off to a perfect start. Bournemouth started their Premier League campaign, their first Premier League campaign, in disappointing fashion as Aston Villa got a second-half goal from Rudy Justet. One to nothing victory for Tim Sherwood's men. Two to two was the score at Goodison as Everton came back twice to draw newcomers Watford or returning Premier League team Watford. Leicester with three goals in the first half hour scored four to two victory over visiting Sunderland. Chelsea saw Thibaut Courtois red carded early in the second half. The ensuing equalizer from the spot from Bafatemi Gomes gave Swansea City a two two draw at Stamford Bridge. And then on Sunday, Newcastle United and Southampton another two two draw thanks to Shane Lawn. 79th minute equalizer. West Ham scores the upset of the weekend, a 2-0 victory at the Emirates over Arsenal and Liverpool with a late long-distance goal from Felipe Calcino scores a 1-0 revenge victory over Stoke City at the Britannia. But that's it for the small talk, gentlemen. When we come back, we'll start digging deep on the weekend's games. But first, let's take a break here and get a word from our sponsor. The opening Saturday and Sunday of the season is in the can, and the Premier League has picked up right where it left off. But to keep that excitement going, I want to invite you to check out Rabble.tv for a new type of TV experience. Rabble.tv is a place to listen to live match commentaries from real fans while games are being played, and the way it works is simple. All you have to do is tune into your game, but then press the mute button. Then head over to Rabble.tv to listen to soccer fans providing their own call. Or better yet, you can create your own broadcast and call one of your team's games just by signing up for free and switching on your mic. With Rabble, you can listen to a broadcast on your desktop, through your iOS app, and now through your mobile browser. So sign up today at Rabble.tv, where it's your team and it's your call. I have missed that music. But another thing that I missed was actual Premier League action, and the first weekend of the season certainly got off to a flying start. Lawrence, I think most people are going to talk about what happened Sunday at the Emirates, 2 to nothing victory for West Ham United, and the big signing of the summer for Arsenal, Petr Cech, brought over from Chelsea to 
solve the hypothetical problems in the goalkeeping position for Arsenal ended up to being an actual tangible problem on Sunday. Yeah, goalkeepers this weekend overall have been a tangible problem, haven't they? For the, the top sides, at least. Yeah, not an intangible problem. We could actually tangible them. Uh, yes, exactly. It, it, it's, it's a directly measurable thing, which is sometimes, I mean, I guess that's actually how most goalkeepers are, are judged, right? Is, you know, uh, and that's, that was the weird thing was actually uh, all of the goalkeepers' strands this weekend have been flipped. So if you look at uh, the way what Arsenal bought him, they bought him better check for the tangible side of the fact that he would own the box, those kind of things, and the kind of goalkeeper that he was, but also the mentality that he would bring to the back line. And then the thing that they bought him in for was the very thing that seemed to escape him this weekend. Let's go through both of the goals. Kartik, I think the first goal really exemplifies what Lawrence was talking about. The communication issues that sometimes plague a defense and their goalkeeper. When you have a set piece like that, Dimitri Payet is standing above the ball, somewhat to the right flank, maybe 32, 35 yards out. And the way that Arsenal was marking, you knew that Payet was going to put that ball right between Czech and this oncoming rush of defenders and attackers. And Czech has to be extremely aggressive about defending that area. And he just wasn't. Uh, granted, Kuyate beat his man, got to the ball, cut in front of Czech. But that is exactly the position that Czech should have expected that ball to be. And she should have attacked that ball, I think. Either you attack that ball or you stay on your line and you trust your defenders, right? You do one or the other. I think you probably attacked the ball, but he didn't do either convincingly. And it was a goal. And at that point, Arsenal's chasing the game. And he, you could sense the vibe around the Emirates after that was, oh, no, here we go again. This is typical Arsenal. This is the Arsenal we've come to expect especially early in the season over the course of the last few years. And I think that vibe is fueled by just some inherent expectations about what people think the difference in goalkeeper should mean to Arsenal. And I think a lot of that is based on apocryphal assumptions about what these goalkeeping gaffes in the past have meant to Arsenal's title chances. Kartik, I just am not of the opinion that the upgrade in goalkeeper is going to be enough to take an Arsenal team that was very good at the end of last season to the level that they need to be consistently at that level. I almost think this goalkeeping issue is a bit of a red herring for a roster that still has a number of players in the starting 11 that wouldn't start for the other title contenders. I think that that's certainly the case. I think there are a number of guys who play for Arsenal that may not start for other top four teams, but you can make that case about the other teams near the top. They haven't upgraded their squad beyond bringing check in this summer. They didn't bring in another holding midfielder. They didn't bring in another quick wide player. They didn't bring a striker to complement Giroud. Santi Carzola wasn't starting alongside Coakland in this game. And that was the combination in central midfield that really spurred uh, Spurs the long term, right? Because it sounds like we're talking about Spurs, Arsenal's great rival, North London rival. But that's really the the combination that, that pushed Arsenal forward in the second half of the season last season in central midfield. Ramsey's moved back into the center of midfield today because he doesn't want to play out wide anymore. He's been very public about saying he doesn't want to play out wide. And I felt like uh, Arsenal lost a lot in the midfield with that combination broken up. And, and Ramsey may not want to play out wide, but he did quite well when he was playing out wide last season. So, Lawrence, I take it you might be a little bit skeptical of my uh, view that Arsenal yep. still lacks in a couple of areas in their starting eleven. I guess, um, I, no, I, I agree that there's a, a lack, but I don't know whether the lack is, my evaluation would be, um, I, I don't really like the man-for-man man sort of thing. These mm -hmm. guys don't really measure up. Right. Um, I don't really think that works because I think it, 
you know, when you're talking about a squad overall, you probably want to evaluate the whole squad and how those guys knit together. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember who it was. I know it's rude to sort of tell a story that, uh, you know, someone's told you, but um, I saw it on TV and the guy basically said, uh, you know, when United won the treble in 99 or, you know, they, 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 were, they were fielding a side, some of the board were looking at that side and questioning Sir Alex Ferguson's thought process and saying, well, he wouldn't get into this team. He wouldn't get into that team. You know, Emmanuel Petit, blah, blah, blah. And I, I see what you're saying, but at the same time, I see exactly what Czech has brought to that back line. And I think he has solved the problem for Arsenal. I just think that it's it's possible for those two narratives to run side by side. Czech has not solved the problem, but let's face it, this isn't going to happen week in, week out with him. Mm-hmm. Although the problem was also that for a little while he did seem a little bit shaky. Um, and, you know, there were questions over mentality at times with Czech. And then with Arsenal, it's how they knit together. And, uh, you know, I think West Ham basically took that cohesion apart as well, because this weekend we saw them... Uh, basically, the, the right players come good for West Ham. No, that's that's a really good point, and I actually do agree with it. I think uh, reducing it to they could be better in certain areas is definitely overly reductive. But for a team that is trying to catch up to a certain level, and we have three title contenders that are trying to catch up to Chelsea's level, I do think it's also overly reductive to say Petr Cech is going to mean this much to this team when you can also say, well, this is still a team that is starting Francis Cockle in, in midfield. And this is still a team that is starting Nacho Monreal at left back. And this is still a team that has to go through spells every year where Olivia Giroud's quality is questioned. And they, even this uh, offseason, Arsene Wenger has had to deal with seemingly endless questions about the quality he has in a striking position. So I think that's good that you mentioned that as kind of a check on this overrun narrative of um, looking at players individually. But Kartik, I do think that uh, what we saw today against West Ham is that Arsenal is a team that is not only vulnerable uh, in terms of individual players, but still vulnerable in terms of for lack of a better term, uh, mentality. And it's something that we've talked about with Arsenal for years and years and years. They still seem overly susceptible to games like this. And we only have to go back to a couple years where Aston Villa, opening round of the season, went into the Emirates and pulled off a similar upset. Yeah, and I remember the game against Sunderland where uh, they had Sunderland at at, at, uh, the Emirates in the first game. And uh, uh, Sunderland was very unfortunate not to get the full three points. They ended up, uh, I think it was a nil-nil that day. Uh, There a mentality thing with Arsenal. They start slowly, and a lot of it in the past was about the excuse was, well, Wenger needs to upgrade the squad. He hasn't spent money this summer. Uh, the team is not at that level. They're going to get caught by someone. They're going to fall out of the top four. That has not been the conversation this summer. The conversation this summer has been Arsenal is now Chelsea's greatest title contender, contending rival. They got Peter Cech. That's all they needed. They're now the team to beat. Uh, Manchester City has fallen off. Manchester United's not good enough. Liverpool's fallen off, etc. So the narrative has been completely different this summer. Yet we saw the same mentality, especially when they fell behind in this game. You know, after they fell behind 1-0, it seemed like West Ham, in spite of all of Arsenal's possession, was more likely to get a second goal before Arsenal equalized, and that's what happened. And then from that point on, it was uh, it, it, we didn't see the kind of urgency out of Arsenal uh, we would have hoped to see. It felt like a very Arsenal early season game from the past few years, but as I said, the difference being this season the expectation is they contend for the title. The previous seasons it was, uh, Wenger, you need to spend, 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 or you're going to fall out of the top four. So seeing that same mentality has got to be very worrying for Gunnar's fans. 
people who got optimistic, rightfully optimistic this summer. But we've seen Arsenal stumble like this in the beginning of seasons before. We've seen them pull themselves back into title contentions and then stumble later in the season. One match does not a season make. I think one of the tendencies that on these first podcasts of the season that we could get into is drawing too much from individual results. So I think we can look a little bit too deep at the Arsenal result here and eventually draw some negative things that might not play out over the course of a season. So let's shift focus here, Lawrence. I want to talk about West Ham because West Ham made some significant changes this offseason, probably most significant on the sidelines, where it became apparent halfway through last season that Sam Allardyce was not going to come back. They also let Stuart Downing go. Alex Song didn't come back this year. And with Slavin Bilic coming in, they've made a number of other changes. Uh, tell me what you thought of West Ham or what you think about Slavin Bilic's fit there. Uh, it's been a bit of a conversation point given how they've been performing in Europa League. Isn't that funny? Um, uh, that was the interesting thing was the expectation was that they would match up to the way they've been performing in Europa League. And actually, that wasn't the case here. I mean, you know, if, if we're looking for yellow cards in the game, then fairly early on, I think you'll find that there were quite a few in the first half. In fact, they, they picked up, I think it was three yellows. And, uh, you know, I think that that indicates somewhat of the way that the mentality is with this side is that there is... Uh, there's an aggression and a, a very aggressive side to this West Ham team, and that works really well for them. But at the same time, I think what Bilic will bring is uh, a European element of control. And I think we saw that as well, the fact that they basically managed to mute Arsenal. Um, but what I do, and, and this is what I'm interested in here, is uh, are they really playing an Arsenal side? You know, this isn't the same as playing an Arsenal side who's sort of looking imperiously controlling. Hmm, good point. Um, and I sort of wonder in the first weekend whether some people are still getting out the starting blocks. And I know that's an incredibly cliche thing, but uh, West Ham basically hit them for two and then it was, done. The, you know, the game was done by then. No, that's a great point. One of the things that Slavin Bilic said after the matches, one of the things that made him particularly happy about this result is Arsenal had played so well in the preseason, which immediately pops into your mind that you shouldn't take anything that happens in preseason seriously. Chelsea hadn't won a game in preseason at all. But Kartik, I, I do like Lawrence's way of looking at this. Rather than judging West Ham's achievement against beating Arsenal, we should really be judging against, well, what level of team did they face today? They faced a team that was playing in Arsenal's venue and had Arsenal's kits. But this seemed more like a, a performance we would have saw from like an Andre Villas boyish Spurs team. Yeah, and what we saw from uh, ADB Spurs teams were either very good performances or performances where they got ran off the pitch at White Hart Lane. The 3 0, 4 0, uh, uninterested players. But that came because Villas messed with the, the squad selection. He had too many players at his disposal. Uh, he, 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 he would swap lineups, swap, uh, make these changes. The team we saw today for Arsenal was the same team. Mm. Now, I mentioned, obviously, uh, uh, the, the, the Cozola, uh ramsey switch tactically, but the same team we saw minus Alexis Sanchez last season. Oh, and, of course, adding Peter Cech, who, at least in theory, is an upgrade over Espina or Chesney or whoever. So, to me, you were still facing Arsenal. There, there are issues with Arsenal. We don't overreact to one result, particularly the first match of the season. But this is a West Ham side that uh, has struggled in Europe. There's been a lot of questions about them. There's been a lot of talk that West Ham might be that that other team that people haven't really thought about that might get sucked into the relegation fight this year because Big Sam's gone. The kind of resourceful tactics that got West Ham through the last three Premier League seasons with Big Sam as their manager will be gone. And that there is a might be an over-reliance on kids uh, on this 
team, and Andrew Valencia, who was their most spectacular player, uh, has gotten injured and will not play for the first three months of the season. So there were a lot of questions about West Ham. And of course, you talked about their exit from the Europa League. There were so many questions about West Ham coming into this match, and they, it, it seemed like the perfect setup for Arsenal to get their season going the right way. And guess what? Arsenal got beat. Let's shift to West London now, gentlemen, where another title contender dropped points at home. And while Chelsea didn't drop all their points at home, they did manage to get one against uh, Swansea City despite playing about 40 minutes down a man. Lawrence, I don't think there's much consolation Chelsea can take from this given that Swansea was their equal until even before Courtois got sent off. Yeah, I see what you mean. Um, The thing thing again though with Chelsea is I think there's a general expectation around this the first game of the season. I think Mourinho is almost suffering and this is this is maybe neo Mourinhoism, okay. and possibly that the the issue here is that which season is he in now with Chelsea? So this is his third season back. There we go. So ah. where where are we headed towards with with Mourinho? What what's the Mourinho look right now? What's the outlook? You know, where is he taking his team? How's uh, how how is his motivation timeline working out at this point? And I, I'm just just wondering. If uh, we're also seeing some uh, a mixture of tired legs and tired minds out there, and the mentality last season was one that was very strict. I mean, you know, to get John Terry to go 38 games is an incredible achievement in the first place. But then to be able to continue that, I think, you know, goes even further. And I think a lot of this Chelsea side, they, I don't want to say look lackadaisical, but I know there was just there was a there was a very sort of laid back element to some of the play where you just sort of thought. Wait, wait, why are you doing that? Like, Cesc Fabregas casually gave the ball away mm-hmm. a few times. And I just thought, that's very unlike um, this, this oh, Chelsea side. Cesc was particularly bad in this game. I mean, he was. this was the worst I've seen him play in the Premier League uh, in, in either of his stints, uh, Arsenal or Chelsea, since he was a kid. He had games like this for Barcelona. But uh, he, he, probably since he was 17 or 18, I have not seen him play as badly as he did yesterday. Just the image of him just kind of jogging back as Andre Ayew gets up from the ground, takes another crack at that opening goal, and you see Cesc is not, there's no intensity there. And the amount of time that John Joe Shelby had on the ball as Oscar is pushing up to press high, uh, at some point Fabregas has to have an impact there also. And Kartik, when I was doing my research before our shows, uh, before the season, I looked at the Chelsea team and I saw Terry and Ivanovic playing pretty much every minute last year. I saw Cesc having 18 assists. I saw Diego Costa being mostly healthy, healthy for the games that matter, scoring 20 goals. And I saw a lot of points for individual regression. But then I also saw Aiden Hazard potentially could get better. William could potentially contribute more going forward. And Oscar is young enough to where he can get better too. And I just don't know what to make of this Chelsea team, Karchik. What's your gut instinct? Are you thinking that they're going to be as good as last year? I'm thinking they're going to be as good as last year because I think Hazard is going to get to the next level where he's in the top five players in the world. Hmm. If that doesn't happen, they're not going to be as good as last year because Fabregas, we talked about, he will regress. Costa, uh, I think, uh, might get injured again. He's got these nagging injuries. He could get volatile. I think Falcao will help them, by the way. There's been, a, there's been a narrative written about Falcao based on his experience in that dysfunctional Manchester United team last season under Louis van Gaal, which I don't think applies to him now going to Mourinho. I think it'll be completely different. I think he will be useful for them. But um, I'm very concerned about Ivanovic, actually. I, I think he slowed down. He was never a natural right back. 
if they sign John Stones, maybe he plays at right back. But I don't know that he quite has the pace to play at right back for a Premier League winning side either. I think the right back position might really come back to haunt uh, Chelsea at this point. And, and we saw some of that yesterday uh, with, uh, with just the incredible game Jefferson Montero had. Uh, uh, seeing Jefferson Montero just rip up Ivanovic and, and just the kind of lack of um, urgency in Chelsea's midfield yesterday was also uh, of concern. So I think, uh, I think you, you, you look at the Chelsea team, you think this is a season where they maybe could have used an Andrea Sherla or a uh, or a Kevin De Bruyne in that team in that midfield because they're not a very deep team, and you have one or two injuries or one or two things that are not working, then you're in trouble. Hmm. You mentioned Jefferson Montero. I just wonder too if tactically they didn't consider Jefferson Montero enough of a threat. You know, before a game, if you and I were to sit down and map out these teams, we would circle Montero versus Ivanovic and say, Montero is a guy on the ball, one of the quickest players in the world, and Ivanovic, his strengths are elsewhere, not in his foot speed. And if you're a, a, a manager, maybe you go to William and say, look, you just cannot get too far from this guy at any point this this game. You are going to have to fully track this guy back all the way into the defense because you're the only person that can do that. And I just oh, wonder wow. if Chelsea didn't uh, didn't take the Montero threat seriously enough. Uh, along the lines of that Montero threat, Lawrence, let's talk about Swansea a bit. A lot of people were very high on Swansea because they were very impressed with what Gary Monk did with them last year. It got them all the way to eighth place. They made some significant additions. You look at their team player for player. I know how you don't like to do that, but you look at their team player for player. There's quality in every position. And after seeing their performance today, the confidence the team had the question that I can't help asking is how good is this team going to be this year? I still think it's going to struggle to to punch above where it currently is mm-hmm. um, because I think Chelsea are med. I mean, that that's the problem is, you know, you just spoke about paper and where, well, the, the way that the team will play. I think if AU plays well, then we've certainly got a, a side that's, got more than what that Swansea side had last season um, and I think Sigurdsson can play into that uh, and, and I think the midfield behind that also somewhat enables that my worry is that attacking that back line mm-hmm. um, how how much uh, can they take from say a, a fully fit Diego Costa or um, a back line who are maybe being pushed around by a bigger striker within the league and I think that's part of it is the, the, the front of Swansea really excite me the back line I think they have the ability, you know, they have the ability in there. But I, I just wonder if, you know, when people are at their peak, whether this Swansea side will be able to deal with them. And I think that was part of the question last season as well. We heard similar questions this weekend regarding Manchester United, Kartik, because many people were surprised to see Daley Blind starting beside Chris Smalling in central defense. Obviously, it worked out fine. Blind had one or two moments where he was bailed out by the whistle in the first half. But the central defense pairing helped uh, keep a clean sheet despite David De Gea being in the stands, Sergio Romero seemingly giving the ball away every time it was at his feet, and a 22nd-minute own goal held up for Manchester United. On Sunday morning, it seemed like every outlet had their dissection of what this means for Manchester United, what the seemingly disappointing performance means for the Red Devils title challenge. So I'll just throw that question to you, Kartik. What do you think we learned about Van Hall's Red Devils after that 90 minutes on Saturday? Well, I think first off, Manchester United supporters should be thankful they got Spurs in the first match of the season. They didn't get Spurs in October or November, because I think Pochettino gets one or two more players into this team, which he says he's going to, uh, they're going to be very good. Uh, this has been a dramaless summer for Spurs, very un-Spurs-like. They've got a manager who stayed with them and who's going to be with them for a number of years, and they've got a manager who's really bringing their youth along. 
So that's the first point. Manchester United, lucky with the fixture list that they got Spurs to, uh, at Old Trafford this early. Uh, and Spurs have made no changes to their squad. Uh, uh, they had no additions to their squad. So basically, Harry Kane is by himself up front, which allowed United's back line the luxury, makeshift back line, the luxury of, of knowing that, that uh, Tottenham didn't have a plan B until Eric Lamella came on the pitch late in, uh, late in the match. Lamella coming back from Copa America. So he, uh, he's not fully match fit, not ready to go 90 minutes. If Lamella had come on 15 minutes earlier, I think Spurs would have gotten a goal and maybe gotten two goals. So uh, my takeaway from this from United is that I, uh, I'm not very high on Manchester United coming into this season. Uh, I picked them fourth. I, I, before the season, I said I think Tottenham, if they get a couple players, can push them for fourth. Liverpool, if it clicks, can push them for fourth. And I stand by that. So they beat Tottenham, the team that I thought might challenge them uh, closest for fourth. But I still believe uh, once Spurs add a couple more players, they'll be, be as good as Manchester United. Uh, of course, there is the possibility that Man United could get Pedro. And if they do get Pedro, then we can talk about them. But in the context of the team they have now... I, I think fourth is probably the best they're going to do. But, Lawrence, let me play devil's advocate here for a minute. A Manchester United oh, fan devil's. is... Oh, right. Okay, I didn't mean to do that. A Manchester United fan is going to look at their team's lineup, and they're going to see Depay playing out of position, Young starting when maybe... Uh, sorry, when she... Richard, sorry. No, you're wrong. Uh, uh, they, no, one knows, no one knows that Depay is playing out of position in the Premier League. Everyone thinks he's playing exactly where he's supposed to be. Oh, sure. Okay. Um, yeah. sounds no, like... no one watches Edivisi in England. You have to remember that, Richard. Sounds like Please. I need to get back on Twitter. They see a team where Young maybe gets pushed to the bench when Schweinsteiger is match fit. They see a central defense pairing that isn't ideal. At least they're told it's not ideal. And they see that they're playing with a goalkeeper that apparently abhors having the ball at his feet. So... It, some people will look at this as a shell of a Manchester United team, or at least the shell of the one that will be assembled to uh, contend for the title. To what degree do you buy into that, and to what degree do you think that discussion is even important right now? I, I think it's important to Manchester United. I don't know how important it is um, to you personally. To I, uh, well, that's the thing is, I guess if if we give it if we give it the credence that um, Manchester United maybe want to give it, then that allows them a little bit of time to be able to ease in, but basically. Um, take some of the pressure off and a 1-0 against Tottenham is actually a very good result in the first place uh, even if you didn't manage to score any goals um, and you know the guy you got mainly up front hasn't scored any goals um, they, they've had some impressive performances in pre-season but I think they were found out at times um, and I think that part of it is that Especially with Van Gaal, um, you know, he, he comes good. And, you know, that's the narrative. And I just wonder if there was a comment that you made to me years ago when we were recording a documentary. And you basically said, listen, I, I, don't, I didn't grow up with any of this uh, hoodoo surrounding anyone. You know, Liverpool are just Liverpool. They're the same as Aston Villa. And I just wonder if for a little while the magic had left Manchester United, and you know, with, with David Moyes. And mm -hmm. I just wonder if, if it's, the magic has slightly changed at United. It's not the same magic that we once had. And that's not a bad thing, but I think there's a general lack of acceptance that United is a different team to the team that we knew just a few years ago. And people are finding that hard. Hey, everybody, it's Richard, the guy you've been listening to for half an hour. Well, one of the guys, but I'm also the guy that's been gone for four years, which means there's a little bit of rust on these pipes as well as on this computer. And as a result, one great conversation between Lawrence and Kartik about the three newly promoted teams talking about how well they did this weekend got totally wasted. File got corrupted. 
totally because of my fault because I forgot to set my computer not to go to sleep during a conversation. File didn't save while we were recording. When I went to open it right now, it was corrupted. It's my bad. Won't let it happen again. I've already changed the settings on my computer. But as a result, we're going straight to segment four. Sorry. All right, welcome back. Last segment of the show. Usually during this fourth segment, we'll do a little bit of a roundup of what's going on in the other leagues in Europe. But as of right now, three of those big leagues have not started yet. Spain, Germany, and Italy still to come later this month. France did start this weekend and, in fact, got a head start on the Premier League where the defending champions, Paris Saint-Germain, got a very Lauren Blanc-esque 1-0 win on Friday. So they pick up right where they left off. But what we're also going to be doing in this last segment of the show is going around and asking everybody on the panel two questions. Who are your top four form sides in the league right now? And which four teams do you think are going to finish in the top four at the end of the season? And Kartik, you drew the short straw on this one, so you get to go first. Uh, Start with which four teams are impressing you most right now. Okay, so we've only had 18 teams play, so we take Manchester City and West Brom out of that. Uh, The most impressive sides... This weekend were West Ham, one, two, Leicester City, three, Swansea, four, Chelsea. Yeah, I, think that's, I think that's fair. And then based on what you know now, obviously not much has changed since uh, you made your preseason predictions. Uh, what four teams do you think are going to finish in the top four at the end of the year? Okay, so I, I, I did uh, my predictions for another website, and I have Chelsea one, Arsenal two, Manchester City three, and then a big drop-off between four third and fourth, the top three could all win the league. The fourth place team, I had Manchester United edging out Spurs uh, at fourth and fifth, and then Liverpool, I, I, I said if they, if they get, get, get it together, they could push for fourth also. So it's basically two tiers of three. Those top three, and then United, Spurs, Liverpool all fighting for four. Well, for me, the four sides that really impressed me this weekend, uh, Swansea, definitely, I thought they were very impressive. Same thing with West Ham. Um, I'm going to go ahead and agree with Kartik uh, here, and even though they Drew at home. I still think Chelsea were very good, and the quality of the opposition really obscured that a little bit. And the fourth team, I had a lot of trouble here because I don't know that there was a fourth team that really stood out to me. Part of me wants to say Crystal Palace, but even though (laughs) they were so inept going forward, I'm going to say Manchester United is my fourth team just based on the strength of competition. I thought Tottenham Hotspur actually played pretty well. As far as my four teams at the end of the year, after one week, I'm not going to change what I think. Um, There hasn't been enough evidence to really do that so far i'm still picking chelsea one i like manchester city number two people still kind of overlook that manchester city had the best goal difference in the league last year or one of the best goal differences in the league i like arsenal third and manchester united fourth uh lawrence your top four teams right now and then your top four teams at the end of the season uh you know what i'm gonna put i'll I'll match up car with west ham in there just because uh, the performance they put in against arsenal uh i think i was still appreciative of what arsenal can do i think they would just look very lazy so for that reason i'm going to put a listener in there i'm going to put liverpool in because i think exercising uh the ghost of 6-1 is the way that people are going to go with this but i yeah. think just getting that kind of a, a performance for liverpool and the fact that they they played so exceptionally boring and still managed to win the game um they were very boring in preseason at times as well i think that's what we're going to struggle with this season with liverpool um and I also think this is the hard fourth team that I actually found stimulating. Uh, I'm going to because I think, you know, I think Palace have got, uh, you know, I know I've banged on about it, but 
I think they, they were the best team in the league this weekend. And as far as end of the season, Lawrence, who are your top four? Who's going to finish in the top four? Uh, Chelsea, uh, United, oof, Arsenal, City. If anyone's going to push them out, I do think it's going to be Liverpool. That's what the, that's what the bookies are saying too. Uh, Liverpool, a very logical bet for fifth, and I would put them at, at fifth also. Although I do th- like Hartick, uh, do think that Southampton's going to be stronger than people are giving them credit for. Um, let's go through the games that we haven't talked about yet. Let's start with Liverpool. Lawrence, you talked about their performance at Stoke City. What's really stood out to you about that performance? Uh, the fact that it, it uh, was one where they kept a clean sheet, first of all, um, it's also one where they were uh, they they weren't making the right kind of passes aside, um, and I think that some of the the formation that Rogers played in this game, it's still very much finding itself. Um, I think that's the problem. Rogers doesn't quite set this team out with a very clear way of going forward in an aggressive way and I think when he changed it up then it became a lot more aggressive Liverpool side against um, a Stoke team and a Liverpool team that, that both seem to be committing a lot of fouls. Liverpool committed more fouls than Stoke in this game um, and I think that was part of it mm-hmm. um, and I, I, what I saw in the end was that it was just, it, you know, it wasn't an excellent moment from Coutinho but it was also bringing on Emery Chan, um, taking off Lalana, who looked very pedestrian in this game but probably has a really good place with the squad um and also swapping out ibe towards the end um i think also makes sense i I would actually like to see ibe use the opposite way around as an explosive uh impact player at different points um but for me i think it was the fact that liverpool have got a back unit now which goes uh klein skirtle lovren uh and gomez uh, with Mignolet just behind that. And I, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing that challenge this season because I, I think that stands up to a, a much stiffer test than Johnson on the right side. Oh, so sorry. I was just going to say I was uh, disappointed by Stoke because I've, I've really had high hopes for them this season. Obviously, Bojan's not completely fit yet, and they might get Shakiri. And if they get Shakiri, they get a fit Bojan. They could push, not maybe for top four, but certainly for a European place. And they just didn't show it today. Mm. Kartik, one of the overlooked games of the weekend, Newcastle hosting Southampton. People expecting Southampton to regress. People still remembering the Newcastle crash under John Carver. But these are two player-for-player relatively talented sides, and they played them. They played each other to a standstill. Yeah, Newcastle uh, has Steve McLaren as their manager now. It didn't work out for him at Derby. He was sacked. But he does have a tactical sense and a, a connection to the Dutch league, which we're already seeing, right? Because we did all Every player they've signed has come from Holland, I believe, this summer. Uh, and obviously, same thing with Southampton. With uh, Koeman as their manager, uh, Koeman as their manager. I uh, I like this game. This was a good game to watch. Uh, Newcastle very good down the flanks, which is something we haven't always been able to say about them. Uh, surprise start for, for, for Gabriel Overtown, and, and, and he, he looked pretty lively. And then we talked uh, about uh, the Southampton side of things earlier. Uh, Graziano Pella, excellent game. And Shane Long coming off the bench, uh, using that pace, uh, uh, to get a goal. And then Lawrence, the highest scoring match of the weekend, Leicester City scoring three times, first 25 minutes, 42 victory over visiting Sunderland. Is this Leicester being good or Sunderland being Sunderland? It's Sunderland being Sunderland for a huge part of it, but I also think that Leicester were very aggressive in this game. I thought that they played uh, with the way that I imagine Ranieri would always want them to play every week. I imagine that's going to be difficult because not every club will roll over like Sunderland. Um, and th- that's what I think is most frustrating about Sunderland this season. And probably frustrating for some people about Leicester is that the predictions uh, and uh, are always, well, this club will do this, club, this club will do that. A lot of people predicted Sunderland, and I was one of those groups, um, would uh, struggle. I think they'll probably start very strongly. Um, and then I think with Sunderland, 
I still think Sunderland got enough to stay up just because there are other teams just below them who are probably not going to do as well. One match on Monday, West Brom versus Manchester City. Uh, Kartik, what do you look forward to in this one? Raheem Sterling, he's the talking point. I think he changes this Manchester City team that already scored the most goals in the league last season, although uh, Manchester City has lost a lot of the goal scoring from last season. Frank Lampard's now in MLS. James Milner is now with Liverpool. Edin Dzeko is now at Roma. Those three guys, and Jovetic now also has left. So uh, the this, uh, leading scorer, four, five, six, seven, gone from the club last season. Uh, but you bring in Sterling, I think it changes just the way the team can play going forward. You have more pace. You can be more direct, more space for David Silva to create. Uh, Sterling has looked very good in the preseason. Manchester City has not looked good in the preseason, but Sterling has looked outstanding. So that's uh, the big thing to look forward to. Now the downside for Manchester City is that the back line is looking very fragile. Uh, Company is still not back up to uh, where we where we were accustomed to him being. Uh, there's a real possibility tomorrow, Jason Denier, who was uh, a youth player who came through City system, a uh, Belgian international, uh, on loan at Celtic last year. There's a real chance he gets a start because Martin D. Michaelis is, is not ready to go after Copa. There's a, uh, with Fabian Delft's injury, there's a possibility that there might be a, a youth player thrown into uh, the midfield. And then there's also uh, a young player, uh, Inacio, a Nigerian 18-year-old who was made the senior squad. Uh, this is part of that holistic approach Pellegrini has talked about, blending in youth players this season. Uh, that's the big question, then, about Manchester City. As Pellegrini blends in these youth players, does that mean City, as many people are predicting, fall to fourth, potentially fifth? Or uh, do they just get better with the youth players blending in and the addition of Sterling and Delft when he's healthy uh, to push uh, push for the title so that's that's a big question and we'll begin to get some answers tomorrow and then lawrence despite the fact that tony pulis doesn't send teams to the second division uh, people are still mm-hmm. talking about west brom as a potential relegation candidate are you buying it uh no i think they're probably wrong um i think that there are again i think there are uh, more weak teams below west brom there i also think yes a lot of talent. I wonder if that's the worry for a team like West Brom. And I think you're probably picking that out in this transfer window is that uh, could they lose guys? Hmm. And could they lose guys? Uh, they, got, they got Ricky Lambert, though. That's a huge signing for them, quite frankly. That, that's it's, it, really, yeah. I think, puts them in a relegation conversation, that signing, that one signing. Yeah. Well, everybody, our first show back together, but our first of many. We'll be back with you in a week's time to review the second week of action in the English Premier League. But until then, for Kartik Krishnar and Lawrence McKenna, I'm Richard Farley. The team's back together. The band's back together. Enjoy your football. The World Soccer Talk podcast is produced by Christopher Harris and Richard Farley and is a production of worldsoccertalk.com. For more information on the show... Check us out at worldsoccertalk.com or subscribe through our iTunes feed. You can follow World Soccer Talk on Twitter at World Soccer Talk or follow the show's hosts. Lawrence McKenna is at Lawscast. Kartik Krishnar is at KKFLA737. And I'm at Richard Farley. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.